0: Welcome to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. In Luke 24, Jesus told two of his followers that the entire Bible was about him. Yet their reading of the Bible had not actually prepared them for Jesus. Sadly, the same thing is still happening today, even in churches. This podcast is an invitation to reread the Old Testament with Jesus in mind, to unbind it. From the many ways it's been misread and misapplied i hope you'll join me here we go welcome back to the unbinding the bible podcast for this second podcast one of the things i thought would be really helpful would be before we jump back into the old testament specifically and look at all that i think jesus intended for us to understand when we read the old testament I think it might help us first before we even do that to just begin um, with kind of an examination of just what it is that we think Jesus did when he came. Um, There was a lot of confusion surrounding what the Jews thought Jesus was going to do when he came, and sometimes uh, Christians recognize that, and because of a very particular culture in which we live, it's very, very easy to reduce, not, not necessarily intentionally, but we do it nonetheless, to reduce Jesus's message and reduce the gospel to something that is um, very individualistic. And um, it's very easy to do that, actually, when you re- read the Bible. You, you don't maybe intend to do it this way, but you do nonetheless. You affirm that you know you're a sinner and you believe Jesus died to take your sins away, And so you can be forgiven and go to heaven when you die. And that's sometimes the view for many people about what the gospel or what the good news actually is. And it might even sound shocking to you when you hear me state it like that and then to say that some people think this is the gospel because for me... I recognize that those things are all true, but for that type of message to be the total complete picture of the gospel is very, very narrow. In fact, you actually don't need much of the Old Testament at all in order to come up with that interpretation of the gospel. Maybe a Apart from a few verses in the fall, or a couple other references in the Psalms or in Second Kings about sin being present in every person, you really don't need vast portions of the Old Testament story. You certainly don't need Israel's history. You certainly don't need passages about the law. You don't need the vast majority of what the prophets rebuked the people for doing or for not doing. You really don't need the story in order to come up with, "I know I'm a sinner." I believe Jesus died to take my sins away so I can be forgiven and go to heaven when I die. Those things are true, but they're such a small part that I think, and and the reason I've titled this section, how big is your gospel big enough, it is just so that we know when we enter into a reading of the Old Testament that we're not just looking for individual application to our own personal life. We are attempting to see what God is showing us about the whole world and about ultimately what he intends to do to redeem all of it not just the individual people who are a part of it if that makes any sense and hopefully as we go through some of the passages in Genesis in particular I'll try to clarify exactly what I mean but for now let me just point out that I I grew up in a context and maybe you did too maybe you're still part of one I'm not really sure but Uh, Because this was the predominant way of thinking about the gospel or thinking about the good news just as it applied to me individually, it seems that basically what you need is the story of Jesus' death on the cross and then a few verses from Paul in his epistles in order to explain it. And I think what this actually does, and it did in my experience, and my experience is only one perspective, but in my experience – The churches that I grew up in spent the majority of their time preaching from Paul, preaching books like Romans and Ephesians and Philippians and Galatians, and absolutely beautiful books. But very rarely did we venture too much in the Gospels. Hardly ever do I remember hearing good teaching or explanation of the Old Testament. It was almost always a letter written to a church. We're a church. We should receive it in this way. But we don't actually get the big picture if we do that, and we kind of forget that Paul knew the Old Testament incredibly well. And much of what Paul writes in the New Testament is dependent upon his knowledge of the Old Testament, a knowledge that many, many, many people don't actually have. So the Bible actually tells a far bigger story. It's not just something personal. Salvation is not just something personal the Bible tells the story of God seeking to restore, redeem, and reclaim the entire creation through Christ, healing divisions that exist between nations, bringing salvation at every level of human and, and creational need and loss, like bringing it all back together, tying it all back together. It's the big story, if you will, of salvation. And even Paul, in a book like Colossians, seems to make this point the way Paul thinks of salvation according to Colossians 1 15 through 23 it's a passage that begins by highlighting the supremacy of Jesus and in Colossians chapter 1 Paul Paul says this he says Jesus he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, if you take what Paul says in Colossians, the way Paul is thinking about salvation is that it is for the whole creation, then it's for the whole church, and then it's for individual believers. And that's the actual order that Paul puts those things in. He states them that way. It's for the whole creation then for the church, then for individual believers. When you read passages like Ephesians chapter two, you get much more of the same. You get God in Christ uniting the world to himself, uniting Jew and Gentile into one new man and presenting us both to the father as one. So there is this global perspective. There's this larger perspective that's involved when, when you talk about the gospel. So you can think of it this way. What was the problem that God solved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Now again, this is a question that gets you to is your gospel big enough? What was the problem? Now, if you teach or think or preach or you know go to a church that does all these things, sometimes people choose to sing songs that conclude that the only problem is me and my sin. Now, that is a problem absolutely that's a problem. You you can't talk to another individual person, which you do when you have conversations with them, without at some level being able to recognize not only that they're a sinner, but that they need to acknowledge that sin in order to recognize even even the beginning points of of need of of redemption. But if that is the only way that we think and speak about the gospel, we make it entirely self-centered. Now, I just want us to think about that for just a minute, because if you make the gospel the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, you make that a self-centered endeavor, then you've actually contradicted the very gospel that you claim to um, hold on to. You make it all about me and my sin and my salvation, but that is making the gospel far narrower than the Bible itself makes it. And it is surely a strange and wrong thing to be self-centered when thinking about the gospel, which is God's great plan for the creation, for the salvation of the entire creation. So, the whole creation is affected by sin and evil, as Paul tells us, even in Romans 8. All human relationships in society, marriage, marriage, between brothers and wider society, through the generations of history, racism, class divisions, hostility, male-female disputes, slaves-master disputes. These are reasons why even in passages like Matthew 5, where Jesus is teaching and says, if you are there offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, first go and be reconciled to your brother And then come and offer your gift. What he is saying is that yes, reconciliation between a broken relationship between you and another person is so important to the thrust of the good news that you will leave your moment of worship between you and Jesus at the altar. You will go be reconciled to that broken relationship with that brother first, then come back and offer your gift. I think maybe one of the easiest ways to understand how this actually works is to, first of all, look at Genesis 1 and 2 and see what God originally set up in the world What commands he gave, what his expectations were, what his intentions and purposes were for mankind, for the creation in a garden where he dwelt with man. And then would be to look closely at Genesis 3 when all of that was lost. And to continue reading the chapters that immediately follow into chapter four, where Cain and Abel are discussed, and into chapter five, where death seems to reign supremely over people's lives, and into chapters six, seven, and eight, where, for reasons that I hope to explore with you, God decides to wipe the world out with a flood and begin over, followed by what happens immediately after, leading ultimately to a very nationalistic attempt to understand their position in the world at the Tower of Babel. And what you and I have to understand is that the gospel that Jesus has come to proclaim, the good news that Jesus says he himself is, is absolutely there as a way of solving what it is that actually went wrong in the fall. Another way that we can think about this idea of the gospel and is your gospel big enough is we can we can even begin with Paul, which is probably a, a place that is familiar to many, many people. But in Galatians 3, Paul actually says um, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you... Shall all the nations be blessed? And so, what I think is really, really helpful for you and I to keep in mind is that if if we were to ask ourselves or ask anyone else, you know, when is the first time that the gospel, you know, is preached in the Bible? and, And many people's natural reaction is to think, well, it's in Matthew. Jesus comes and he comes proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. But it's certainly not the first time that this has happened. And what Paul says in Galatians is that the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. And there's some arguments that could be made that we have references that might even predate Genesis 12. But at the very least, let me bring this one up to you, and and I'll explain why in just a minute. But in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, here's what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Now, as you are reading through the Bible, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 forms an absolutely crucial point in the story. For 11 straight chapters, forming the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but also the first 11 chapters of the Bible, we have come face-to-face with the entire structure of everything that will ever be talked about through the rest of the Bible, through the rest of human history. We've dealt with creation. We've dealt with creation of, of man and woman and their position in the in a perfect garden with God. We've dealt with temptation and um, desire to become more like God than what they actually were already granted. And we deal with what mankind is as men and women made in the image of God. We're given a commission to rule over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and every living thing that creeps on the ground. And and then we have sin entering and we have temptation to mistreat those partners in our Um, divine commission. And I would like to take the time over the next several podcasts to walk through some highlight points from the first 11 chapters of Genesis, because I think they don't get enough attention. And I actually think that the way the Bible is structured, many of the themes and tensions and issues that surface in the first 11 chapters of Genesis will take the rest of the Bible to unpack And the reason why I think that is because in Genesis 1 through three, the promise that God makes to Abraham has striking, striking similarities to the very types of things that have just been going on through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Just give you one example. God says to Abraham, I will bless you and I will make your name great. Now that statement all by itself, you might think, well, that's cool. But that statement, I will make your name great, is actually not just a unique statement of blessing that God gives to Abraham. It's actually in direct contrast to a statement that the workers in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 make about themselves. And here's what they say before God comes down to confuse their languages so that they are unable to continue to build their city. In verse 4 of Genesis 11, they, the people say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, here's a group of people in an act of rebellion seeking to make a name for themselves. God's antidote to that national problem is to particularly make the name great of the person God chooses to get his redemption rolling. But it's interesting if you read what the men say in the Tower of Babel story, they say, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Well, if you back up all the way to Genesis 1 and you hear God's commission for all of mankind, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Part of mankind's actual commission is beginning in a perfect garden. He is to be fruitful and multiply and spread across the face of the entire earth. This is what God intended for man from the beginning. But in the Tower of Babel story, you not only have a group of people seeking to make a name for themselves, but you have them doing so specifically so that they will not be spread over the face of the earth. And so what Genesis 12, one to three is doing, and it does it in a very, very creative way, is countering every conceivable aspect of the fall so that you and I begin to look for how is God going to solve this problem on a global scale? Not on an individual scale, not on a personal and a private scale. It will involve that, but he was going to solve it on a global scale. And the way that he does it is in three verses, Genesis 12, one to three, he uses the word bless five times. And if you read Genesis one through 11, you will find that the author of Genesis uses the word curse five times. He uses it in speaking of the ground. He uses it in speaking of cursed is Cain from the ground He references the curse that he will no longer curse the world with a worldwide flood. He uses it in reference to cursed be Canaan, Ham's son, after Ham commits that horrible atrocity immediately following the flood. But five times in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we're confronted with the curse. This negative downward spiral of sin and death that lead to corruption, that lead to more and more chaos, that lead to destruction and a horrible place for humans to dwell. Genesis 12one 3 which Paul tells us is the gospel preached beforehand to Abraham. The gospel, God's plan for redemption, is aimed in its totality at reversing everything that has been affected in the fall. And so what I want to do in the podcasts that follow is to go all the way back to the beginning. I don't think you and I can understand anything about Jesus, quite frankly, if we jump into our Bibles 80% of the way through the story. You can pick up a few nuggets here and there, and many people do, and they conclude that life is just fine that way. I would much rather be able to understand Jesus on his own terms than understand him on the terms that I impose on him because I'm not really thinking about it the way he is. Jesus said he has come to unite all things in him. And when I, when I hear all things, I do hear individuals between individuals and God. But what Genesis spells out very, very clearly is brokenness within families. Brokenness between Joseph and his brothers. Brokenness between Jacob and his sons when he has a favored wife and therefore a favored son. What do you do about favoritism in families and how does the gospel relate to that? What do you do about brokenness between brothers, Jacob and Esau, where one lies and tricks his father into giving him the blessing when the other one really feels that he deserves it? What does reconciliation look like in a relationship where you've stabbed someone and for 20 years of their life they've felt the consequences of that? Expand it beyond brothers. What about whole families? We've got divorce rates that are rampant right now. What about dealing with small communities? We have churches that are meant to be an expression of how we live out the gospel in community with other people. Why? Because God's intention for humanity is that together we would rule over the creation well. You don't have to have your news stations on for more than 30 seconds to see that there are quite a few different interpretations of what it means to rule well over people. And many, many of them have nothing to do with God's intentions for mankind as revealed in Jesus Christ. And even beyond small communities, you have nations who have wars with one another, who do not know how to get along, who do not know how to live peaceably with one another. The gospel ultimately addresses all of this. But if we read the Bible as if it's only a grab bag of individual promises made to individual people, namely me, then I will miss exactly what it is that Jesus has come to do. And this, I guess, flashes back a little bit to our first episode where I talked through if you want then to read the Bible as if it's really just a list of moral examples for you to follow. Hidden in that assumption, of course, is the idea that the Bible is written specifically to you in your specific situation, and therefore in your individual life, here's how you are to apply it. Well, I think we get Jesus a whole lot better, and we understand the purposes of, of, of God for the world a whole lot better, if we allow the Bible to address the worldwide problem, then him addressing the church and then addressing us as individuals. That might sound a little backwards. You might not even agree with me and that's okay. We'll walk through some passages that I think will help make that a little clearer as we go. But for now, that's all. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you have any questions or any comments or things that you would like to interact with me about, uh, about this podcast or the episode before, please follow down into the episode notes and I'll put a link in there for an email address, unbindingthebible at gmail.com. And I would love to hear from you. Just any questions, any thoughts, any comments, um, that you have about what you've been hearing on the podcast. So hopefully again, I'll be releasing another episode next Thursday and I hope you tune in. See you then.